sermon text for today is from Mark chapter 2, for a change, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirits that they were questioned, that thus questioned with, within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Problems are only resolved when they are dealt with at the root level. A couple of weeks ago, I found a wasp's nest by my front door. I thought, easy fix. You buy the spray, and you spray the wasps, and my wife will think of me as a hero. So I did. And of course, no wasps were left after that. But a pastor friend of mine, who should spend more time pastoring and less time giving pest control advice, told me to leave the nest there because it would keep the wasps from coming back. So I took the advice, but the wasps did not get the memo. They're there still this morning. I should have learned from Andrew and Dow, right, who are not afraid to deal with wasps' nests. You know, the wasps' nests that were in the front, on our front wall over here, about 60 feet above the floor. Yes, they climbed that. And there are no wasps left there. They know how to deal with the root of a problem. Our greatest problem in life is that we have sinned against an eternally holy God. Sin is at the root of every problem we face. Sin cannot be dealt with on the behavior level only. Sin has to be dealt with at the heart level, at the root level. Man need not simply improve. Man needs to be transformed. 
Man needs to be born again. Because God is holy, our sin separates us from him. Because he is holy, his natural response to our sin is one of justice, which is accomplished by the pouring out of his wrath on us eternally. Sin makes us enemies of God. Because God is eternal, our sins also have eternal consequences. We're unable to pay for them because it would take eternity for our sacrifice to be deemed sufficient. Sin makes us deserving of God's eternal judgment. Since sin is the root problem we all face, sin must be dealt with at the root level. Our hearts are completely corrupted by sin, and unless God removes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, we have no hope of overcoming the enslaving power of sin. But our great problem has an even greater solution. 1 John 3, 5, you know that he, that is Christ, appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. The solution for sin does not live within. The solution for sin comes from without. The solution for our problems is Christ. Friends, the promise of the gospel is the promise of forgiveness. The promise of the gospel is the promise of reconciliation with God. Our sins would indeed be removed from us. We would profit nothing if we gained the whole world but lost our souls. We don't need bigger cars, bigger homes, better jobs. Our children don't ultimately need an education, a good job, good relationships, or a prosperous future. We need Christ. In Christ, and only in Christ, our sins are forgiven. And only in Christ are we reconciled with God. In Christ, our deepest needs are completely met. In Christ, we lack nothing. And today I want you to meet Christ. I want you to see Christ. I want you to observe Christ. I want you to behold Christ. I want you to look to Christ. I want you to long for Christ. But I also want you to meet other people who interact with Christ. Some rightly, some wrongly. I want you to meet the inquisitive crowd. I want you to meet the faithful paralytic and his faithful friends. And I want you to meet the faithless scribes. So as we start looking through our text today, let us consider the inquisitive crowd. Jesus had begun his public ministry in Capernaum in chapter 1. We saw that 
the months, the earlier months. And he would minister primarily, Mark would tell us, through his teaching. But he would also minister demonstrating power and authority through healing and casting out of demons. Capernaum became for Jesus a hub, a ministerial hub, his headquarters. Capernaum was a vibrant city with a robust fishing industry. Capernaum was the crossroads of the northern part of the country. So much took place in Capernaum. Jesus' first disciples were from Capernaum. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Jesus very likely lived in Peter's and Andrew's home in Capernaum. But because his fame had spread so broadly, and because he was unable to minister directly to his inner circle and to those who indeed had needs, he had to temporarily leave Capernaum, we saw that last week, for the villages in the, re in the region of Galilee. But now Jesus is back. He's back at home. And people are starting to hear that Jesus is back. Verse 1, it was reported that he was at home. And along with him, this character that so often appears around Jesus in the Gospels. The crowd. The crowd had an interesting way of relating to Jesus. The crowd seems to be mesmerized by Jesus. They can't get enough. They were very inquisitive about Jesus. Everywhere he would go, they would follow. The crowd clearly loves the benefits of being around Jesus, the healing, the food, the powerful teaching. But the crowd is never said, never once in the Gospels, said to be found faithful or filled with faith. Jesus does not seem to think too highly of the crowd. He knows they're there, so he interacts with them. The crowds were often a hindrance to Jesus' ministry. Very often in the gospel, Jesus says things to discourage the crowd from following him. Very often in the gospels, Jesus sends the crowd away. And sometimes in the Gospels, the crowd even turns against Jesus. But as we see in verse 2, Jesus is filled with mercy. So Jesus gives the crowd what the crowd needs. He's teaching. And friends, that's informative for us, right? We often think we have so many needs. But the teaching of Jesus is our greatest need. If Jesus walked into this room today, the first thing that he would do is he would teach us. 
He would instruct us. Because through teaching, faith can be born. Jesus is teaching the crowd here at probably Peter's house. And the text tells us the house was filled to the brim. There was no room left at all, not even at the door. Not one more person would fit. It is the teaching that comes from Jesus that has the potential of leading the crowds to believe and repent the gospel. Remember, this is Jesus' mission to preach a gospel of faith and repentance. If miracles were the primary, primary way to impart faith, Jesus would prioritize miracles. If the casting out of demons was the primary way to impart faith, Jesus would prioritize the casting out of demons. The primary way for faith to be born is through teaching. So Jesus prioritizes the teaching. The teaching of the gospel. And a crowd without the gospel is just that, a crowd. But when a group of people embrace the gospel, us, as they embrace it together, that is no longer a crowd, that is a church. That's the difference. A church gathers together around the good news of Jesus Christ. But crowds are easy to build. All you need is one simple common interest, and you can build a crowd. A train rack builds a crowd. Eleven men ch chasing after a ball builds a crowd. One person playing the same three chords over and over again on a guitar builds a crowd. But a church? How is a church built? A church is only built on Christ. Crowds, crowds inquire about Christ. Crowds come close to Christ. But they never experience Christ. They never experience the transforming power of Christ. Churches, however, draw their lives and purpose of existence from Christ. Why do we gather? Because of Christ. Because of a man who walked this earth. 2,000 years ago, who died, was buried, was raised, and said, I am God, believe in me. That's how churches are built. James Edwards, in his commentary on Mark, says this, Enthusiasm for Jesus and even proximity to him are not the same as faith. Crowds can often look like churches. And churches and crowds can often be intermingled together. Wheat often looks like tear. Tear often looks like wheat. It is not enough to inquire about Jesus. It is not enough to have a religious approximation to Jesus. Christianity requires total surrender. Just two weeks ago, a group of members from our church were sharing the gospel with a group of FIT students. And one of the students asked the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? And our 
summer intern Eduardo said, it means you have to give up everything and follow Christ. Friends, this is the right answer. The only answer that builds a church, the answer of surrender, the answer of union, the answer of redemption. The only answer that builds a church is leave everything and follow Christ. By contrast with the crowd, we meet five men who were not just inquisitive about Jesus. They come to Jesus out of genuine need. These five men come to Jesus driven by faith and not mere curiosity. So, meet the faithful paralytic and his faithful friends. Among this innumerable throng, there came four men carrying a friend who was a paralytic. A paralytic is a person who is affected in some way by a paralysis. And this man's paralysis prevented him from walking. A real need led him to Christ. This is a good reminder to us the paralytic's condition was a gift. Our needs, our weaknesses often drive us to Christ. A gift that we receive of surrendering because there is no hope outside of Christ. If your weakness drives you to Christ, just like the paralytic, your weakness is a gift from God. God has granted you to suffer so that you would know your need for him. Johnny Erickson Tata is a woman who, when she was 19, she hit her head while diving. And she has been a paraplegic ever since then. She writes extensively about suffering. And here's what she reminds us of this morning. Heartache forces us to embrace God out of desperate, urgent need. God is never closer than your, when your heart is aching. Those who have all their needs met often sense they have no need for Jesus. But those who are clearly aware of their need can constantly recite, your grace is enough, Jesus is enough. Give me Jesus or I die. Romans 5, 3 and 4, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. My favorite passage to share with saints when I go see them in the hospital. Knowing that, Suffering does something, produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And friends, this hope that God wants to produce in your life through suffering 
is the blessed hope of eternal life. But the only way we will enter the blessed hope, Paul says this in Acts 14, is through the suffering that drives us to Christ. We must enter the kingdom through many sufferings. Charles Spurgeon, 19th century Baptist preacher, said this once, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. When our suffering drives us to Christ, our suffering is a gift from God. As the paraplegic man and his four friends approach Jesus, they find a problem. A physical problem that has a spiritual parallel to us. The crowd was preventing them from getting to Jesus. But his friend's ingenuity resolved the problem. Imagine the friends talking among themselves. Well, we can't get to Jesus. How are we going to resolve this problem? How are we going to resolve this? One of them says, how about we remove the roof? And then all of them in unison say, genius. Most houses in Capernaum during the time of Jesus would have a staircase on the side that would lead to the roof. And this roof was, was different than what we would think today as a roof. You would have beams and you would often have tiles. It was more like a deck. So when we're thinking of this man removing the roof, it, it is not as impossible as we initially think. When I was a kid in Brazil, my grandfather's house had a roof like this. Beams and tiles. And that was it. And right outside his house, there was an enormous mango tree that reached over the roof. It was not infrequent for mangoes to hit the tiles and break them. And hopefully after that, those tiles would be replaced. But they were not always replaced. So sometimes, yes, it would rain inside my grandpa's house. But regardless of this, imagine the scene, a crowd in what was like, likely Peter's home, and all of a sudden, someone is removing the roof. Now, talk about distraction. I mean, what did Jesus think about this? What did Peter think about this? Wait a second. That is not covered by my insurance. What about Peter's wife? Was the crowd bothered because something distracted them from listening to Jesus? We can become bothered sometimes by those that come to Jesus with need, Jesus with need, can't we? I was talking just before the service with someone and saying how wonderful it is to hear children in our service. Friends, our children need to hear the word preached. May we not become embittered or bothered at the fact that our children are here. On the contrary, let us rejoice in that. And when we hear a child in the service, 
pray for them because they have a great need for Jesus. So what did Jesus think of this? Jesus thought of this as an act of faith. The text indicates that the paraplegic and all his friends acted out of faith. A faith that pleases Jesus. Very often, Jesus uses the intercession of others to heal someone. And that's for his glory. James 5, if anyone is sick among you, call the elders. So they may pray. And the prayer that is given in faith will heal the sick. These men are filled with faith, looking for Jesus for the benefit of his friend. Let me say one brief thing about these four friends. You want to have friends who will lead you to Jesus in your time of need. You want friends like this in your life. You want friends who are filled with faith in Jesus. The friendships we choose will often determine our destiny. Real friends lead their friends to Christ. Children, if you ever come across friends who lead you away from Jesus, it is better not to be friends with them. This does not mean we cannot have unbelieving friends. No, we want to have friends who are unbelieving, but we want to lead them to Christ and not be led astray by them. Adults, that is true of us as well. We must choose our influences in life according to how much they drive us to Christ. How are you doing in this area? Are you strategically choosing friends in order to grow in holiness? Are you wise with the people that you surround yourself with? When you interact with your friends, do you live with a greater desire for Christ? If you don't know how to do that, let me just encourage you to draw closer to your friends at church. The church is the best place for us to find relationships that gear us towards Christ. Let us prioritize the fellowship of believers. Now, it's interesting that out of this entire crowd, Mark highlights the faith of these five men. These are messy people. They arrive late. They trash the place. They cut in front of others. And they're still commended for what they did. Why? Because they believed Jesus. It is better to be messy and have faith than to be all put together and be hardened in your heart. The church is a place for messy people. The church is a place for people who don't meet your expectations. The, the church is a place for people who come out of desperate need. And friends, when we're bothered by people with need, we have not realized our need. 
we have not yet been enlightened by how much we still need God. Hebrews 11 says, without faith it's impossible to please God. And the logical conclusion is that, therefore, with faith it is possible to please God. Faith pleases God. Now, the action of these five men was certainly unexpected. But what is most unexpected in this entire passage is Jesus' word to the paralytic. Jesus says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, the man needs to be healed. He doesn't need to be forgiven. Jesus, you're over-spiritualizing a perfectly natural situation. You know how to heal him, just do it. Jesus, don't offend the man by calling him a sinner. Jesus, don't you see what his immediate needs are? Meet those. And Jesus would say, I do. I know exactly what he needs. And the reason why you don't is because men see the outside, but God sees the inside. Friends, the greatest need that men that had is the greatest need you have. You need to hear from Jesus, your sins are forgiven. No need is greater than that. Sin is a spiritual corrupting agent. Sin is a deadly killer. Sin is deceptive. It makes us think we are okay so we can live our lives feeding its pleasures. The less aware you are of the sin that lurks within your heart, the greater danger you are in. Sin will tell you, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, but we're not. Apart from Christ, we're dying spiritually day by day, headed towards eternal condemnation. We need life and we only find life when we come to the source of life, Jesus Christ himself, in faith and repentance. How do I know I take sin seriously? I repent from it. How often a day do you confess your sins? How often each day do you come before the Lord recognizing every way that you have sinned against him. Do you sometimes feel dead spiritually? Do you sometimes feel apart from God, cut off from his people? If you are aware of that, that's a good thing. That's a reminder that you need Jesus. That's a reminder that you need to come to Jesus. Now, the text doesn't tell us if there is a relationship between the sin of the man and his physical condition. That's not Mark's point here. There certainly, certainly is a relationship between the sin we've been imputed from Adam and the brokenness of the human experience, including bodies that don't function as they should. But the reason why Jesus prioritizes the forgiveness of sin over the healing of the body is because physical healing expires when we die. 
if physical healing was a permanent reaction for every believer, we would have some people walking around there 2,000 years old. But everyone that has believed God since Jesus came to earth has gone on to die. Physical healing expires when we die. But spiritual healing through forgiveness of our sins guarantees, guarantees us eternal life with Christ. So when I go visit the saints in the hospital, I pray for their healing. And I always pray that the Lord would sustain their faith. And we all should do that as well. These men are commended for their faith. But the faith of these five men is again contrasted with the faithlessness of the scribes. So let us consider now the faithless scribes. We've heard about the scribes before in chapter 1, haven't we? Scribes were teachers of the Mosaic law. They believed the promises of God to Israel would be fulfilled through obedience and not ultimately through faith. No wonder Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, not matches, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you never enter the kingdom of heaven. And also, Jesus would say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, heart matters, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. This you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And it's this obedience without faith that we see in the passage today. The scribes preach salvation by works while disregarding the need for regeneration. Without regarding the need for faith. The scribes saw Jesus as a threat because grace is the enemy of legalism. Legalism is to follow the law of God without the faith he gives. Legalism looks good on the outside until grace comes and reveals its fruit. The fruit of legalism is whitewashed tombs filled with dead bones on the inside because legalism screams from the top of its lung, Christ is not enough. The reality is we all struggle with legalism in different ways. Because we struggle to believe the sufficiency of Christ. But grace tells us Christ is sufficient. Obedience will not lead you to salvation. The faith will. Why? Because through faith, you receive the obedience of Christ. And that's the only obedience that saves. Now notice in verse 7, the scribes never say anything. But in their hearts, they murmur against Jesus. They complain. He is blaspheming. This is a serious accusation. To blaspheme is to speak with irreverence towards God. Basically, to blaspheme is to make fun of God. To blaspheme is to make a joke out of God. 
How is Jesus blaspheming against God? Well, the scribes would say he's claiming to forgive sins, but only God can forgive sins. Friends, the irony here is that in accusing Jesus of blasphemy, the scribes were committing blasphemy against God themselves. Jesus was not impressed with the scribes. He was not impressed with their discipline, with their generosity, with their spirituality, with their religion. Jesus is only impressed with faith. We often think we can measure spiritual maturity on what we see, but man see what's on the outside. And God sees what is on the inside. On the outside, it looked like the scribes had no needs, but their faithlessness proved that they had a desperate need for Jesus. He who seemed like had a need came to Jesus and had his needs met. Those who displayed no need never had their needs needs met. So now we come to Jesus. Jesus, being God, knew the thoughts of the scribes. Why do you question these things in your hearts? He says, The heart reference here indicates that Jesus knows they're not just wondering what Jesus meant. Their antagonism towards Jesus was deeply ingrained at the center of their beings, at their hearts. The paraplegic and his friends simply believed the scribes questioned, complained, doubted. Great knowledge does not always lead to simple faith. Jesus here does not have a good hunch about what the scribes were thinking. He was not just discerning on the outside. He knew their thoughts. The ESV, like the the NKJV, rendered the word perceived here. But the NIV does a better job translating here. Jesus knew their thoughts. The, The word here is the same word that Jesus would use in Mark 11 to refer to his relationship with the Father. I know the Father and the Father knows me. He doesn't just perceive the Father. The Father doesn't just perceive the Son. The Son knows the Father The Father knows the Son, just as the Son knew their thoughts. Jesus is implicitly answering their complaint. They said in their hearts, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is saying, exactly, I am God. I know your thoughts. Jesus' knowledge of secret thoughts is proof to everyone that he is God. Because omniscience belongs to God alone. Psalm 94, verse 11. O Lord, the Lord knows the thoughts of men, and they are but a breath. Psalm 139, verse 2. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. So, Jesus proposes a question. 
And through this question, Jesus issues a checkmate. Jesus often did that. He answered questions. He, he, he proposed questions. But the answer would lead to others declaring him to be who he truly is. He asks, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now on the surface, it may seem that enabling the paralytic to walk is harder than saying your sins are forgiven. Because one of them we're able to, say, to see visually, the other one we're not. Unless Jesus is truly able to forgive sin. Healing a person shows power over the natural world. Forgiving a person shows power over the supernatural world. But for Jesus, it's all the same. He has authority over both the natural and the supernatural. Because of our limitation, we see the outside. Jesus' visible miracles attested to his divine authority that flowed from his divine nature. The purpose of Jesus' miracle was to prove he was God. So, Jesus, in order to show his divine authority to forgive sins on earth, tells the paralytic to pick up his bed and walk. And the paralytic obeys. Now, we're able to forgive sins if they're committed against us, right? We're told to do that in Scripture. Forgive one another. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying, you offended me, I forgive you. Jesus is saying, you offended God, I forgive you. Only God is able to forgive sins committed against God. Friends, our deepest concern should be the fact that we deserve the eternal wrath of God in hell, but God in Christ and through Christ truly forgives our sin. Not only by overlooking them, but by taking upon himself the punishment we earned. Friends, it is Christ who says, I'm able to forgive your sins because I'm able to carry your sins. I will take them with me all the way to the cross. And as I am nailed to the cross, your sins too will be nailed to the cross. This is the only way sins can be dealt with. This is the only way for reconciliation with God to be true. This is the only way we can have the hope of eternal life is if our sins are pinned to the cross of Christ. Christ didn't die a victim. Christ died a hero. Christ died to rescue us from our own death that was inflicted to us by our sin. It is the cross of Christ that pays the debt of eternity. It is unfathomable. It is unfathomable that a man for a few hours 
on a cross would pray, pay for the sin of all who trust in him. So what is our relationship with sin now if we have come to Christ? Psalm 103. It does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repays us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, how high are the heavens above the earth? Very high. So great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Now, it's interesting because if you start, if you start walking north, okay, at a point, north will become south, right? You go over the North Pole, you start going south. If you start going east, and you just keep going, you keep going east for the rest of your life, and you never become west. That's the picture. How far? It's impossible for our iniquities to meet us again. That's how far he has separated us from our iniquities. That's how complete the work of Christ is. That's why we can live at peace and know that God is for us and not against us. Friends, this is the message that is offered to you by faith. How do you receive this? Not by church attendance, not by disciplined Bible reading, not, not by almsgiving. It's a message that is received by faith. You believe Jesus died in your place. And though you may not be able to explain the Mosaic law like the scribes and the Pharisees ever, and though your righteousness may never exceed theirs, the righteousness that you would receive is from Christ, which is perfect in every way. We started this passage with the crowd and again, we meet the crowd. They were amazed by Jesus' authority, so they glorify God, saying, we never saw anything like this. But friends, the reality is that they hadn't seen anything yet. We haven't seen anything yet in the Gospel of Mark. This Jesus would had, who Jesus who had all authority would walk in humility towards a cross for three years in front of this crowd, living a perfectly sinless life. And there he would deal a final blow to sin. He would be buried and he would be raised. And his resurrection would give us then the power to overcome Friends, are you carrying today the weight, the shame, the guilt of sin? Are you fully aware that you are separated from God? Do you feel the gravity of the fact that God is holy and you are not? Is the Spirit of God so working in your heart right now that you have come under conviction of your sin? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to confess your sins and trust God. The invitation Christ offers you today is not to be like the scribes who trusted in their own works. The invitation that Christ offers to you today is not to be like the crowd who were indifferent to Jesus, just looking for physical benefits. Today, you are the paraplegic. 
who was brought to God in a time of need. And like the paraplegic, you need much, you, you need, your need is much greater than you realize. But if you come to Christ, He will receive you. He will not cast you out. If you come to Christ, you are not a distraction to Him. He will not send you away. He will not say you have sinned beyond redemption. He would say, you are the reason why I came. I have come to seek you. And I have now found you. Today, friend, the invitation that Christ offers is come to Christ. And he will heal your soul. He will forgive your sins. Would you pray with me? Father, we are often so consumed in our pride. We often so trust in our strength that we forget, Lord, that apart from you, we can do nothing. Lord, we forget that no good works are born out of our nature. Father, we forget that we could never atone for the sins that we have committed because even our best efforts are tainted by the sin that we have inherited and by the choices that we make every day. But Christ did that which we could never do. He lived in our place. Father, I pray for the unbelieving hearts right now, today, Lord, let no crowd make them linger. Let no roof keep them from Christ. Work out your salvation today in this place. May many among us cry out, I was like that paraplegic, but I believed Christ, and my faith in him has healed me. Work among us today, Father, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.